All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're starting with verse 12. Um, Sue, I'm wondering if you would, oh, did I have you read last time first? I'm not sure. I had only one person read, and it seems to me I did pick on you. Uh, you don't mind reading again, do you? No. Okay, so if you would read verses 12 to the end of the chapter, so that's 12 to 19. Okay. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So what is this today? This becomes a very important metaphor in this passage. In fact, if we're looking for a leading word uh, called in German a Leitwort, uh, a word in, the, in a passage or in a story, a narrative that is full of meaning that is repeated over and over again, this word today and the word rest would compete with each other for that position. What is today? Seems like today in this context is more like what we would use the word opportunity, mm. a, a period of opportunity. And if you don't take it, it's not going to be there forever. I like that. For one reason, we're not going to live long enough. I mean, you know, we tend to die. And so today would be over. So today uh, applies to each generation who's alive. Yeah, he points that out with it wasn't it with the ones who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert. <laughs> they, they didn't survive the truck. I remember a, a statement I read once where on what said, we don't know, we should all live as if this day is the last day we have. Cram mm -hmm. as much goodness into it as you possibly can. It's been like guaranteed to me. Yeah, I, I was going to echo something along that line is that um, like, combining Floyd and Sue is today is the moment of opportunity. So whether we have this moment, it's today, it's present, it's available. We don't, yesterday is gone, tomorrow hasn't yet come. So today is the only time we actually have for action. We can plan, but it's only day that we have. And this today stretches your, gen, your life, my life, prior generations, and future generations. One thing I'd add briefly is that, you know, if we have fear, we tend to not do what we should, or we, we pull back from, you know, either do things we shouldn't do, or we don't do things we should do. And somehow with God's help, we would have healthy belief and trust in him. You know, we'll seize the day in a positive way and do what, you know, what each one of us can do and what Sue can do and Bill is different than what I can do, but you know, how do we encourage each other to do what only you can do? There's a phrase on my business cards says, it's only a tragedy 
it's usually a sin to do what others can do while leaving undone what you can do. Okay, uh, what about um, his the statement in 18? Against whom did he swear that they should would never enter his rest, if not against the ones who were disobedience? What does he mean by entering into the, his rest? I think the main point to take from that is not that it was God swearing that he wouldn't let them enter into his rest, but rather their stubborn resistance to enter into his rest, which I see as being willing to synchronize with him and his ways of doing things instead of wanting him to synchronize with them. And, and that's what was creating his wrath because they were refusing to allow God permission to do things his way and instead insisting that they wanted to do things their way and just wanting to access God's power to do it that way. And that fits, that fits with Exodus 4, when Moses says, and I, I brought this up last week when we were talking about wrath. <clears throat> Moses says, oh, Lord, please just send someone else. I think God gets angry with him. And he says, all right, Aaron, your brother is going to come. All right, have your way. That's the first canonical reference to divine anger, by the way. There's no reference to divine anger in Genesis. Uh, George, you were going to say something? When my son turned 25, he said, Dad, to celebrate my birthday, I want to take you skydiving. I could spend a long time on the story, but the guy in my back, I cherished my cameraman was going to record this event, hopefully a good ending, uh, did survive it. But I wasn't sure about the guy in my back. He looked really depressed. I didn't know if he was even going to pack the shoot or pack it right. <laughs> but I think in some ways, when they left Israel, they've jumped out of the airplane. God has a plan. And they're saying, you know what? I don't know if I really want to deploy the shoot. I'm going to try, you know. They think they have a better plan in order to get this to happen. And, and, and they wouldn't be capable of fighting these nations they're going into. The way they were going to do it would have not worked. As we see, it didn't work, you know. I mean, God finally did work with them to some degree and did not abandon his kids. But these were, they weren't trained in warfare like these other nations who had lived to survive by survival of the fittest. So what they're asking for was dumb. And God says, I've got you halfway there, and now you're, you're, <laughs> you're trying to take over. And it's like mutiny on the boundary when they don't know how to sail. You know, they, they, they can't get to where they need to go. Uh, so anyhow, I think he takes credit, ironically, and he almost looks bad because he says, in my anger, because it's like we're halfway between this. How can you – your plan won't work, and you look really dumb. You should have just stayed in Egypt you know, being slaves, <laughs> you would, you would have survived a while. Uh, but you know, you, you're, you're not capable of doing what you think you're capable of doing. You need me. And, you know, and the Hornets, I, I guess there are three text type, the Hornets that may use them a little bit, never use them like you wanted to and winning by success and all that. Well, things but, change after Kadesh Barnea and we'll be coming to that. But I want to point you know, out uh, something here. That he says, I will end up destroying you along the way. That's pretty strong language. Is there anything in this passage that might suggest why? I'd like you to look at 33. Doesn't later, when he finally says that he will go with him, he says, my presence will go with you. Yeah. 
And yeah. then in Revelation 14, it's the presence of the angels and the Lamb where all the torture happened. Yeah. So, so look at, yeah, I'm coming to that. Look at uh, verses 18 and following. Moses said, please show me your glorious presence. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. I'll proclaim before you the name of the Lord. I will be kind to whomever I wish to be kind and will have compassion to whomever I wish to be compassionate. But the Lord said, you can't see my face because no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me where you will stand beside the rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will send Put set you in a gap in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you will see my back. But you won't, my face won't be visible. I need to unpack that. Gene, one thought jumped out at me. Never thought of it before this time. You know, if you're like you've really disappointed a key person, whether it's your, your mom, your dad, a grandparent, your spouse, or, or your child, you know, to see the look on their face. And I think to some degree, on the second death, the lost are going to see the face of the Father. Yeah. You're going to see how they broke his heart. And he's yeah. going to be scarred forever. And I think that made part of it, because even those who are going to survive, they know they've done so much to make it easy for other people to abandon God. Yeah. You know, so oh. that's maybe one angle. Yeah. Okay, so another angle is that Moses can't see his face and live. It's just not possible. Because God's face is so full of glory, and that glory is full of love. And the reason I say that is because this making God, God make, letting Moses see his backside is very significant, if you understand ancient Near Eastern custom. You remember in the story of David, when uh, he bans Absalom, he says, don't let him see my face. That was punishment. It was, it was basically exiling uh, Absalom. If, if he had seen his face, he would have maybe killed him. That's a very poor example. But it does suggest one thing, that the ancient Near East understood if you went before the king and he let you see his face, all was well between you and him. But if he turned his back on you, that was a sentence of death you would die. His, his courtiers would probably take you out. And it's understanding that this is the reverse. This is the reverse. God's back symbolizes his wrath. His face symbolizes his love. Moses can't handle, and no one can handle, seeing his love in all its fullness. It's lethal. It's not, it's not because God made it lethal. It's because sin has made it lethal. So what you're saying is that God's wrath is his mercy. Because <laughs> showing him his back, his wrath, is merciful to let him stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just totally the opposite of ancient Eastern understanding. Hmm. Uh, so look at uh, chapter 34, 29. So Moses has seen the backside of God. He hasn't seen his face. He's seen only God's wrath. Verse 29 says, Moses came down from Mount Sinai as he came down from the mountain with the two covenant tablets in his hand. Moses didn't realize that the skin of his face shone brightly because he had been talking with God. 
When Aaron and all the Israelites saw the skin of Moses' face shining brightly, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called them closer, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and Moses spoke with them. After that, all the Israelites came near as well, and Moses commanded them everything that God had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And then whenever he went in before God, he would take the veil off. Moses, uh, Paul likes to make a big thing of that in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 3. Uh, and it's parallel, it's a parallel, diff- different metaphor, but parallel to this never enter their rest. I will, I will not le- ever let them enter into the rest. Or they, it doesn't even say that. It says they will never enter their rest, into their rest. Or into my rest, I'm sorry. So back to Hebrews. So I'd like to go to, to Hebrews. I don't know if you notice this, but the more we see the pieces fit together in Scripture, for this case that we all have of the character of God, the more it feels like we're not just dealing with something legal language or something just language or just words. It actually becomes experiential and real. I, I, this is a kind of a primer statement because we're going to be dealing with something that relates to this. I have spent the last 30 years or more studying ancient Mesopotamia. Now, I didn't, haven't done every year. I've, I've migrated to other areas and done other things. But, but um, for the last 30 years, off and on, I have studied ancient Mesopotamia. And I went in, what happened is that I had decided that once I got my doctorate in New Testament that I would study the ancient Near East and, and rela- in relationship to Revelation, see if I could make sense of Babylon. I wound up in my advisor's office at the beginning of my doctoral program and uh, told him what I wanted to do in the New Testament. And he informed me that I had signed up for a program that allowed only the Old Testament and the ancient. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember driving home in my little Toyota thinking my someday was God's now. (laughs) 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 It was just uh, amazing turn of events. Uh, it's like my whole world turned 180 degrees and I was um, really thrown a loop. But I quickly recovered and I put down that I wanted to study for my major ancient Near Eastern and biblical law. I wanted to get to the heart of the legal model. Mm-hmm. The heart of the legal model is contractual relationships, not real relationships. So I sometimes do this to my students. I say, have you made a contract with your roommate yet? And they look at me like, what? (laughs) And finally, one brave student will say, I don't need a contract with my roommate. I love my roommate. (laughs) So that's what I found with Mesopotamia. And I, I remember the day I landed on uh, the real heart that where it all started was Mesopotamia. It actually started with cities, but I, I decided it started with economics. And that's probably really before cities. 
was economics. Economics changes the value, the way we see value. Mm -hmm. You are worth what you earn. Mm -hmm. It's not a restful scenario. So I want to leave that backdrop for you as we read further in Hebrews. And I, I left out, we didn't cover Kadesh Barnea, but I think you all know that that's another place where God says, you shall never enter my rest. You, you won't go into mm -hmm. the promised land. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that he didn't want them to. It was that they couldn't. They said no. And once you say no to something, you're never prepared again, unless you have a change of heart to enter into the rest. We see they couldn't be enter because of the lack of faith. I need someone to read for chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Anybody willing to read that? Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. And he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not because of unbelief. Again he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Yeah, this is a, a problem passage for Adventists. Mm. This is, In what there's way, Gene? There's another day, see, that whole thing. Well, it's a metaphor. The whole thing is a metaphor. Uh, and a metaphor is you don't take things literally. <laughs> this is symbolic. But I can't resist tying this to the Sabbath day. So I'm going to give a little ad here. Walter Brueggemann, who is a famous professor of Old Testament and sociology, has written a book called The Sabbath as Resistance. And he nowhere in the book talks about Sunday. He talks about basically the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's a very interesting 90-page read because he suggests that the Sabbath is a call to resist the economic modeling of slavery mm. and working seven days a week, 20, almost 24 hours, which is American lifestyle. He starts with the prologue to the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, 
This is how you will live as free people. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? I set you free from slavery. And, and that, mm. you have to sharpen that against ancient Mesopotamia, where all Mesopotamians believed that they were created to be slaves of the gods. That was their reason mm -hmm. for existence. Mm -hmm. So don't worship all these other gods. It's embedded in the creation story as well. The sun is not named the sun. The moon is not named the moon. Why? Because this is, this is a polemic. Genesis 1 is a polemic against worshiping other false gods. And if you name the sun, that's a god. If you name the moon, it's a, it's a god. Mm. So don't be, so God creates us in his image, male and female, and then gives us rulership over the natural world. We are to rule the natural world, we're not to be slaves to it. So even the human beings are not given names. That's true. Because name designates control and power. Mm. In chapter 2, though, he said Adam is asked to name the animals, but he still isn't given a name. That's so he has that control over the natural world. He won't be a slave because most gods were part of the natural world. <clears throat> so you need that background. So, Adam named Eve. Does that make her... Well, this is after the fall. He's going to start controlling things. <laughs> so how do we come up with Adam? Just because Adam means... Adam so is... Adam is Adam. It means from, it's, it's taken from the soil. So Adam is, is, Adam is man. It's generic from humankind. It is not male. It is not a man as in a male. It is a human being. And Adam is a human being in Hebrew. So Genesis never calls Adam by name. It just talks about him as the human being. That's the way they translated it. Huh. The man, instead of the man. Instead of the human, they translated Adam. And made it a name mm -hmm. instead of the man. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's other translational manipulations like that, like the Lord. And I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I want to make that clear. <laughs> but, but Yahweh does not mean Adonai. But what happened is that the Jews... We're so concerned during the exile for not taking God's name in vain. Right. They failed to recognize that Yahweh is not the same as God's name. It's still a substitute, but it has close to the same meaning. I am who I am. Uh, I am who I am is a different form of the verb Yahweh. Um, mm -hmm. But they failed to realize that, so they added a substitute, Adonai, meaning the Lord. <laughs> So Yah, okay, Yahweh is that. Yeah. By the so, way, it was very Babylonian move because the substitute name for Marduk was Baal, which means Lord. Oh, um, this is not no. Baal as in Baal in the Old Testament. This is Baal as in <laughs> now in the New Testament. Didn't the disciples call Jesus Lord and a Lord to whom shall I go? Or you know they did because yeah. the Greek Septuagint. Right, the translators of the Greek Septuagint put the name Adonai, or it's Kyrios. Kyrios in Greek is Lord. They translated Yadonai, I mean Adonai, 
which is really Yahweh. They translated that as Lord. Yeah, not the Greek Septuagint. Just a quick question about the real name of God, I am who I am, or I am that I am. Is, does it make a difference whether it's who or that? Um, yeah, it does if you, if you interpret it differently. Is I it, am who I am is a dynamic statement. The verb to be was not static as it is in Greek. The verb to be is, is dynamic. And this is a dynamic God who is becoming, not in the sense that he isn't who he is. He is who he is, but he's dynamic, who, dynamically who he is. It becomes... And it really refers to... Um, I'd have to go to my notes here. I'm, I'm, I haven't... I've thought so deeply on this that I haven't gotten it in my memory. <laughs> um, I'd have to go to my notes, and I don't know where they are at this point. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm saying this because we need – the whole Bible has been given a wrong cast, I feel, from this change and who God is. The Lord. From I am who I am to Lord. Yeah, whereas I am who I am could be I am who every you need me to be to serve you to help you to rescue that me. that could mean that um, I am who I am means um, I'm I don't change in the sense I, I change in the sense of being dynamic and mediatorial and and working with you where you are but I am who I am my my love never changes my yeah. my character Amen. never changes I will always um, be one there's there's oh. more to that there's just a whole theology behind that name. Yeah, I always as a kid, I used to read that and think, "What? You know, I am who I am, or I am that I am." Or that. Yeah. What I, I never understood it either until a few years ago. One thing in in Egypt, I, I saw this documentary around Egypt, and they said one of the pharaohs used to go around saying, "I am." You know, it, it was this big deal, like "I am the provider." I am. Do you have a source for that? I, I'm. Oh, I've never read that. I want to read that. Because that would that would make it that would yeah. make a very good backdrop against which God gives the name to Moses because yeah. that's all about Egypt. And I was wondering if it was in Moses' time that that Pharaoh did it, but I didn't have time enough to grab a computer, make notes, or anything, you know. So, so do you, can you find that source again and send it a link? To I'll try on the internet. I you know I'll try looking up I am Pharaoh, you know, and see. Yeah, I would I would love to know about that. Wouldn't that be parallel to when God's talking to Moses and he said, I will be merciful to who I will be merciful. Mm -hmm. you know, it's That's like, an extension. I, you're not going to define who I'm going to forgive, who I'm going to show mercy to. I define. Mm -hmm. If you take God's name, he says, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will pronounce my name. He pronounces his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. That is his name. So I, when it says Yahweh, Yahweh, it's saying, I am who I am, I'm this, right? Yes. Okay. That's good. Dean, I, I heard that another biblical scholar recently um, who's behind the Bible project, and he said this, what you're just referencing when, when Moses 
dialogues with God's dialoguing with Moses. And he mentions this. He says, this is the most repeated Old Testament passage throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah. And, and if you're linking, if you're linking the name, it's just fascinating as you're saying, if we really truly understand what God is saying about who he is dynamically, that that would just be profound. And I just, are you aware of that? Is that, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that specific fact, but I, I can I definitely believe it because I've seen it in other places. Here's another picture background to bring to this. A name in the ancient Mesopotamia was a, like a substitute for the god. It was a double. It was like your character? So, no, it's a double. It meant power. If you've seen me, you've seen Whereas, the father. No. no, no. You're thinking. You're thinking Bible. Think Mesopotamia. Think Babylon. In Babylon, it meant power. It meant a double, uh, and and it was like making an image of the god and putting him in a temple so that he had more power in that particular temple or that particular place. Mm. So, did it mean that the name had a magical power to them, or it gave the name? Yeah. It kind of did have a magical power. So but when we, God comes along and says, this is who I am, to mm-hmm. Exodus 34, he is saying it's about character. And that's a theme difference mm-hmm. between the Old Testament and Mesopotamia in a nutshell. Yahweh mm-hmm. is about character. The gods yeah. of Mesopotamia are about power. Wow. Wow. Oh. Wow. Wow. So um, we got way away from Hebrews, but I want I want to ask you: Can we relate this, even though it's a metaphorically used and it has nothing to do with Sunday worship? Can we relate this passage, and how can we, to the seventh day Sabbath? Can we I know that the rest is personal? resting from our works and having trust in God. Right? Mm-hmm. Got that mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. What does it have to do with the seventh day Sabbath? Other than the fact that God rested from his works, and so we rest from ours quite literally. Well, this is the end of you earning or working your way into my good graces, mm-hmm. a lie by the enemy, or saving yourselves, mm-hmm. or helping yourselves in any way. Depending on yourself instead of me. Yeah. So I no longer, on Sabbath, I no longer earn my value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I no longer am significant and important to this world because of what I make or what I have accomplished Mm -hmm. or what I've earned, what I've achieved. Having a PhD after my name does not at all mean anything. Hopefully means I've learned something. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that I'm any better or any more worthy than anyone else. What is our value any more based or any less? Or any less? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, see, this, for me, there's the um, the sense that Sabbath, entering Sabbath rest, entering God's rest and resting from our own works is that he has provided our, the fullness of 
who we are, of our identities, of our value, of our worth. Everything outside of that is our striving for supremacy, our striving for validation. So to me, the way I would bring that is um, we're entering Sabbath by, by entering a Sabbath rest. We are surrendering all of our identity and accepting his over us. I love that. I don't think I can agree on that. Gene, you were saying previously that the, the foundational problem that we're up against is, is the idea of, of commercial worth, which I believe is completely validated in Ezekiel 27 and 28, where before Lucifer sinned, he was involved in excessive trading. Mm-hmm. And and so I believe that commerce is the very foundation of everything, including hierarchy, including law, religion, everything. Because slavery, you're right. War, it's about everything is tied to that. Yeah, it's, it's about variable value, which doesn't exist in God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. And commerce is all about you know assigned value, fluid value, up and down value. But when I looked at Hebrews 4.10 a few years ago when I was going through Hebrews, I suddenly saw a whole new dimension to that I'd never seen before in a light of creation that just radically changed how I see Sabbath now. And it's, it's, it, it just stunned me because, because Hebrews 4.10 is like an equation. It's like a mathematical equation. And an equation is defined by the equal sign and everything on both sides of the equal sign, according to the law has to come up to the same thing. And in this verse, the equal sign is the word as, you know, as God rested from his. So everything after that has to equal everything before that to solve what this actually means. And when I began just thinking and contemplating on, well, why did God rest? And I kept thinking about that in the big picture of especially what we've been given to know about the great controversy. Suddenly, the whole message of the Sabbath radically changed. Because it's obvious God didn't rest because he was tired. I mean, that's ludicrous. So what, you know, I have to ask why was God working to start with? What did he actually rest from? Well, why did he create? What was going on? Why was there a need to create anything? Well, there was a war going on. Very possibly there was a stalemate in the war. All the beings in the universe were at a standoff, and God's reputation was the one on trial, and you know, it was stuck, and it appeared that nothing could change. So, and, and we know that one of the major issues in the charges against God is he's an abuser. He uses his power, you know, to defend himself or to punish or all those other things. How does God resolve these differences when it appears there is no more answers to be had? So he comes to this world, 
He exercises power. He brings order out of chaos, beauty out of a mess, you know, freedom, love, uh, reflections of himself out of the mess that this world was in, the chaos that it talks about. So he does that for six days. But why does he do it? You know, the, the bottom line question is, if you don't know why he rests unless you know why he works. So when I begin seeing the work as this is God providing evidence to intelligent beings everywhere, and if God's on trial, then the evidence is being provided for the sole purpose of changing minds about what they think about him, right? That's, for me, the big picture. That's what's going on in the war in the context of the creation of this world. If that's the case, then he comes to the end of the sixth day, and if we look at this in the trial motif, God says, I'm finished presenting evidence, I rest my case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in Job it says, all the sons of God shouted for joy. It appears he's won the trial. Mm -hmm. But what did God do? Why did he rest? That You know, this verse says, we're going to rest from our works the same way he did from his works. So what occurred to me, if God was working, primarily to change and alter minds about him. And then he stops working. He stops providing evidence. That means he's leaving everyone free to do whatever they want with the evidence, to take it or leave it, to decide for or against him. But he's no longer going to provide evidence because once you provide enough evidence and then you keep going, now you're hassling, you're haranguing, you're, you're becoming abusive. And so he rests his case and he says, you can decide and think whatever you want to think. I'm not going to try to change your mind anymore. If that's the case, and it seems to me it is, then you go back to the other side of the equation and you say, what does it look like for me to rest, to cease working? And I say, well, what kind of working are we talking about here? Well, what kind of working was he doing? He was working to change minds. Why do I work? Well, you know, the typical view of works, right, is to change God's mind about us, to be accepted by him, to get him to forgive us, to all, whatever, all these things. We have been trying to change God's mind about us. So what would it look like to rest? If we enter the same kind of rest he rested, that means I'm going to stop trying to change God's mind about me and just let him think what he already thinks about me. And that was a radical thought that totally changed my life. That's great. That's great. You know, I think, you know, he's such a wise person in mentoring, so you're a sage. I just want two quick thoughts. It's kind of cool. If we get what he's talking about, and I think I agree with everything you said. It's some pretty deep stuff there. That's maybe what helps keep us from going late to see it, brings us out late to see it. And for the rest of eternity, it's to prevent a medicine that for any new intelligent creations, which I think are going to happen. Some people think, you know, 
you know, that, hey, marriage is in the museum. There's never going to be new intelligent life because it got messed up. We're never going to go there again. And I just disagree with that. I know lots of reasons. The only people ask Jesus about will there be marriage in heaven are the ones who didn't believe in miracles or heaven or angels. So, but if God has something different, that's okay too. But I think there'll be new intelligent life somewhere being created. But this is why Sabbath is needed for the rest of eternity because God wants to take time to talk with us. You know, he's still doing everything he needs to do. He's so infinite. He can give us our 100%, what we would call 100% of his attention. So we'll never go AWOL again, never believe that sin could work or something sick and similar would. So I like what you're saying there. Can I, two things to, to add to this. The key word for me for that whole paradigm of creation story, that first creation story, is he, it was very, and behold, it was very good. Behold, it was good. Behold, it was good. There's one creation that isn't stated it was good. Humans. Uh, Dr. Jacob Milgram at the University of California pointed that out in class one day. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's because we're free. That's because we're not slaves. We're also in his image, not as his image. So we're not doubles of God. If we were doubles of God, everything we said would be what he says, and everything we did would be what he does. No, we're free. We're not slaves. So we're in his image, not as his image. And that means we're not God either. Cool. What you just said there shows God's vulnerability. He allows us to be bad. Exactly. He allows us to scar him forever. Exactly. You know? He allows us to heal, be healed if he'll let us. Because you know? if, if he didn't make us free, Mm-hmm. There would be no authenticity to anything we did. We would just be a double. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and no love. And no love, no. It would be a power model, and once again, that totalitarianism. I think if we put all these backgrounds together, we have just a very rich meaning of the seventh-day Sabbath. And that other day is today. It's not Sunday. It's today. It's that day of opportunity. Uh, where we can every seventh day weigh for ourselves the evidence that God has provided in creation. We can bask in our value. Uh, it came to me a number of years ago that our, soul val- our value is solely based on creation because we were created in God's image. And mm-hmm. that means that we are, I am valuable, you are valuable, everybody's valuable equally. Exactly. And when I sit here and look at each of your faces, I'm seeing a little piece or glimpse of an image bearer of the creator of the universe. You know, it, it strikes me that if, if the church really thought that every person, in every person you see Christ, maybe we'd be out there on the front lines with refugees and trying to help. I mean, the Catholic churches, they've got all these, these outposts there trying to help people who are fleeing their countries because they see no other way out. But where are we, you know? We're in ADRA. Yeah. (laughs) The problem with ADRA is we're only allowed to help uh, physical needs. We're we're forbidden to do any preaching at all. So that's, you know, sad, but it's because of the government money that ADRA takes. Um. So there's no... Uh, I, I've never been able to uh, pronounce the word prostatizing. I've, no, that's not allowed 
They can work, though, with Adventist entities that are there that do proselytize. Yeah. There's so we have to we have to make sure those entities are in place wherever Adra is. <clears throat> sadly, though, yeah. Sadly, though, they're not in in all the regions of the world because in the 1040 window, where a lot of uh, where Adra is really needed a lot, where a lot of tragedies happen, there's three billion people in that window who have never even heard of Jesus. So they're typically are not Adventist entities in a lot of those places that could do the preaching. You know, sometimes when I hear what the church is preaching, I think maybe that's a good thing. Preach always sometimes use words, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, um, having been a missionary and open to serving again in a missionary capacity, I think the work, and I was just talking with Trixie about that, my wife this morning, is oftentimes we use the work as something very specific. But uh, love in action, that's something we can do everywhere we are all the time. And yes, it's going to use words, but they may not be proselytizing words, nor do I feel from my perspective that they need to be. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the the flow of love if we have if we are at rest as floyd was saying it's we have surrendered our striving to to change god's mind right so now we're at rest we're at peace we've accepted the way he views us and we know even those who hate us who work against us who misunderstand us and our and our understanding God loves them and their value is the same in him, whether they know that or not. So, so I think that there's something in letting our, and I think this is Galatians 3 somewhere, letting our trust, trusting relationship with God, letting that be expressed through love as his character is love. And I don't think we have to be prophetizing. I trust the spirit is already at work everywhere that God has not, not started that God, I believe God has started his work in every life that when I meet someone who thinks like me or thinks completely different from me, God is present. I believe that too. However, as a person who has searched, you know, to knock down walls to try and find out who God was, um, because I needed to know I, if, I, if I'm going to even live on this planet. It's a dangerous place, you know. We need the words, too, to help people. We need both. We, you can't have one without the other. I mean, I agree. You need the love. Almost, I mean, you need the love probably first to even survive, right? Children need love more than they need to be preached to when they're little babies. But still, you know, the, the good news, uh, what is it? At Revelation 14, you know, it's like they have the good news and he wants it to go out to the world and it's not going out and it frustrates me to no end and I don't know how to get it out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know to address that on a, on a global scale, Gene, I saw, but I wanted to address that, that people with questions, I, I believe the spirit brings us together for a purpose, a season, and a time. I think 
That's the role of the early apostle community is they relied on the spirit. The spirit carried Philip over here. The spirit led over here. I'm sorry to cut it short. It's really not short. It's been an hour and a half when I spent together. And that's been great. Um, but there is a time to have to close. And, and uh, Let's pray. And gracious Father in heaven, what a wonderful privilege it is to meet together, to pool the different views of your reality that we have in our minds, so that we can see you in all your fullness and all your glory and the love that you have for us. We thank you for every participant here who has shed light on this topic and uh, just about everyone I think has spoken and everyone has shed light. And we, we just thank you for this. We thank you for revealing yourself in your word and we pray that we might read it so as to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.